Welcome to the latest Toby Haydock's Who's Round, and it's time for some remembrance. I'm in the place of a couple of uh, previously very exciting and uh, fun interviews, so I'm hoping history, I'm sure it will repeat itself, as I ask my next victim to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Hello, um, I'm Andrew Morgan, and I uh, directed two, two series of Doctor Who. Um, the first one wasn't that successful, I didn't think, Time and the Rani, although it was great fun to make. And then I got bitten by um, doing it, and then when John Nathan-Turner asked me to come back again uh, for the following year, there was a marvellous Dalek story, and of course I couldn't resist, and um, so did that. So, yes, uh, it's, a, it's a curious point in the show's history, Time and the Rani, because it, it was a rebirth in a way, but it, it, it was coming back from having lost its leading man, the show had been on hiatus, um, and, and Doctor Who wasn't perhaps the BBC's... Uh, prime commodity it once was so was the and yet you had fun making it but was there a nervousness behind the scenes that the show was was on borrowed time or anything and not so much borrowed time i don't think but obviously there was a need to find a new doctor and there was nervousness about uh, who that would be uh, and we did several auditions with, with various people um and uh, bef- before mr mccoy got the uh, got the got the gig at the end um, but it was um, there was a set, there, were, there, were, there were two bits of nervousness about it. One is that there was no script, so the script didn't exist. Where I was sort of employed and due to start, and I can't remember what happened. Uh, Andrew Cartman, or story editor, would, would be able to tell you better than me. But the uh, the script there was a script problem, and there was a doctor problem, and I was asked to be the person to put that right, so to speak. So how was it pitched to you then? We've got no doctor and no script. Would you like to direct? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that sort of thing. No, they, they said it would be all right, and I just felt that it, it probably would be. Um, it would either be disaster or it wasn't. I, I, I'd agreed to do this. I'd always sort of quite fancied a doctor who. Uh, never worked before. I'd been asked previously by uh, John Nathan-Turner um, to do some, but I'd, I'd always turned it down because I'd had other work which clashed with it uh, and um, I was delighted to do it and I just thought well you know, hope for the best really and it turned out okay it was fine well it's, a, it's an amazing synthesis of all sorts of things because I remember when it was first on it's got those that sort of uh, for then astonishing sort of special effects opening with the TARDIS getting zapped in space and put on the planet and then you've got the bubble traps and things like that so, so a lot of it actually at the time was very high end Yes, indeed. Um, indeed. Well, I remember also the other, big, the other problem was how, how do you evolve, how does Sylvester become the new Doctor and all that mm. sort of thing. And Colin um, had left previously um, not a happy man because I don't think he was looked after properly at the BBC. I knew Colin because I, he'd been in a Swallows and Amazons things I did and I always admired him greatly as an actor and tried to persuade him to come back um, just for that one scene where you can mix through from one face to the other. But he wouldn't have it, and uh, quite rightly too, I, I, I think. And um, so that was a problem as, as well, getting, to get in with a new Doctor. But Sylvester was a, um, you know, 
really lovely chap, and um, we got on really well. And, uh, and I thought he was very successful as a doctor. Different, uh, interesting, uh, amusing, funny, um, quirky, and um, yeah, had a great, great time. And it's in, it's, 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 it, I think Doctor Who's... It's always the balance, isn't it? Because Doctor Who's always funny and quirky, but it also has to have drama. It mm. also has to be suitable for children, but has to have something to appeal to adults. So yes. as a director, getting the tone of it must be quite tough. Yeah, well, it was quite... Of course, you, you also look at what's gone before, and Bonnie Langford, who was the assistant at the time, the first, for the first series, um, she'd done it all before, and so it's kind of she helped guide us a bit as to what was what and in her funny way, you know. Um, and um, then when Sophie came along for the second series, that was that, she was great because she was much more sort of spunky, I suppose, the word, and more sort of um, wanted to do her own stunts and things. Indeed, she did do quite a lot of them, and she was she was great fun. And uh, but of course, talking of Bonnie, you had for the first couple of episodes, you had the incomparable Kate O'Mara pretending to be Bonnie Langford. I mean, oh, that's right. <laughs> yes, only in Doctor Who. I know. I think the, the villains were the Tet Traps. That's they? right. Yeah, uh, they were funny. There was, we had a wonderful designer. I wish I could remember his Jeff name. Jeff Powell. Jeff Powell. He was he was uh, I mean, a very very bright and clever, but hopeless. He he designed all the sets on the back of a fag packet in the bar at the BBC. Uh, I never saw a proper design at all, um, but he had this, and then he had a huge row about the paint uh, on the Getted when we were doing it, and he didn't like it and wanted it all out, and there was huge fuss and health and safety were involved and all sorts of things but he was a, a wonderful man and uh, a very, very wonderful eye he had very very talented and I thought it looked quite good in the end I remember um, there was one scene where Kate had to be hung upside down um, for a while and she got some uh, some blood drained into her eye and she was in a terrible state we had to stop the recording and um, the nurse was called down from the, uh, the fifth floor of the television centre and the nurse said, well, I can't come down. If I come down, um, who's going to ban the, the surgery? There might be an emergency. I said, this is a bloody emergency. <laughs> uh, but anyway, she, she was all right after, after a while. And, uh, we, we, did, we restaged the scene with her hanging the correct way up. And I can't remember whether I did something in post-production and turned her upside down or not. But anyway, it, it, it seemed to be fine. She was great fun. I'd worked with her um, before on... Uh, a terrible th- series <laughs> uh, called um, Triangle. I was <laughs> going across the North Sea, and she had to have she had to go topless at one point. I remember quite funny. And I uh, yes, I, I I've known Kate on and off for quite a long time. She got, I knew her sister too before. And um, you won't know this, and we've had lunch prior to this, listeners, so we've talked about other things. Um, Wanda Ventham and Donald Pickering, who you cast in Time and the Rani, had previously been in a Doctor Who together, cast by Jerry Mill, who'd produced you in Heartbeat, and we were talking about Jerry Mill over lunch, so yes. isn't it funny, those patterns? So, yeah, Wanda and Donald had been in a Doctor Who before. Really? That Jerry well, he was, I know he's a great personal friend of Wanda and Tim, um, and, of course, now we have um, a very talented uh, son of theirs, mm. Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, but so... Um, Yes, Wanda and uh, Jerry were, were always very good, and Tim were, were great friends. Not quite know how they became friends, but they they all did. They all came up now and again to do Heartbeat, and uh, much later on that I did Heartbeat, and I didn't know Jerry. Uh, I didn't actually know he directed a Doctor Who, uh, but uh, good for him. Yeah. yeah, and I mean. 
when you came to Doctor Who, having done... It's a really interesting dynamic, you, with Doctor Who, because you always think of a Doctor Who director as doing it at the beginning of their career and going on to do other stuff, because you sort of got it the wrong way around. So, mm. uh, in that sense, were the things that surprised you coming into Doctor Who, that as a director who'd done loads beforehand, you went, oh, I, that, it surprised me that that works that way or that this is a particular challenge? Yes, one of the things that attracted me, and, and it stood me in good stead afterwards, really, are all the visual effects. Um, this was before the digital age as such. Um, so all these video effects and things, you're having to lock off the camera and to do all this and, um, for the post-production people to do their magic. It was all new to me. I'd never done a show which involved much of that. Um, and the, the first year when I did Time in the Rani, we had a sort of production meeting and all these clever, clever people came in and said, um, well, you can't, you must be, in order to shoot this, you must make sure the camera's locked off um, because we won't be able to do our tricks unless you do. So I felt it all, I, I paid attention to what they were saying and I felt I ended up with a rather static show. I, the camera didn't move as much as I liked. And then I, I, I did the post-production and I learned a lot more when I was there with them, what they could and what they couldn't do, and the colour separation and all the various bits and pieces, green screen, blah, blah. And um, I then, when I was asked the second time, I thought, well, I'm going to get my own back on them, because before it was the tail wagging the dog, if you like, they would tell me what I could and couldn't do. And the next year, with this experience I'd had behind me, I started to tell them, I said, no, I'm going to actually move the camera here and you've got to find a way of making this work. There were some things that obviously I knew by then that I couldn't do, but by and large I thought um, the, um, the Daleks episode was, was filmed in a better way with much more moving camera, much more exciting to watch. Well, I have to say, I mean, it's after that first Sylvester McCoy season, which is, which is for many uh, the year that the show really needed to pick itself up from you direct the first story back and it's like a different program i mean remembrance of the daleks is still one of the i think top 10 most fondly appreciated doctor who stories ever and it's like it starts with a uh, you know a long shot of earth a dalek ship arriving john f kennedy's voice and all that. then uh, you know a man tip tipping gets shot by a dalek and flies back and by the end of the episode the dalek's climbing the stairs i mean you, you it, it's hell for leather it's a great it's a great way to reannounce yourself to doctor who yes um, you mean for me personally yeah it's a brilliant well, yeah. production well yes I, I think largely because i wasn't i think frightened is the wrong word but i wasn't so wary about what I could or couldn't do with the camera uh, and partly because it was a much much better script let's face it um, it, it was a really good script by Ben and uh, he, he did a really good job and we were all, we were all sort of much less tentative than we had been in the time before I mean I think Andrew Cartmel got on, was, was great Ben was great Sylvester done in, Sophie came in um, it was a good cast with uh, Simon Williams and um, and others in in the thing, and we had a, we had a ball with it. We had a, and it had a lot of laughs as well. It was great, and the little girl in it, Jasmine oh, Briggs, she, she was great. fantastic, wasn't she? Uh, I knew her; she was a friend of um, a friend of ours family, and uh, she's always wanted to be an actress. And I remember her as a little girl arriving in her, with her mother uh, on a bike, and she was in the basket at the front of the bike, you know, a tiny two-year-old, and uh, she. I thought she did really, really, really well with it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, we had uh, George, I can't remember, it must have 
must have worked with George before. I worked with him subsequently on Harry and the Wrinklies mm. up in Scotland, and uh, he was a super actor. Terrific. Yeah, absolutely. And rather sadly, um, you know, your matinee idol leading man, Dursley McClendon, who looked like he was going to have, you know, yeah. such a career because he was a good was actor so sad, too, died so young. Yeah, really, really sad, yeah. Um, I mean... Quite honestly, I didn't even know he was gay when I uh, cast him. Then sadly, AIDS was at its height and um, he got caught up with it. It was yeah. really sad because he was a super chap. Yeah, very good. But um, Simon Williams, who played the lead, uh, I knew him at school and he's been an old, old friend. Uh, and I thought he was great as a sort of that sort of thing. And he had this pistol, a rather large. Uh, pistol, which he carried around with him, um, and there was a misprint in the script or something, and uh, it said at one point he reaches for his chunky uh, in the script, and so he thought he meant. I thought that meant his pistol, so his pistol became his chunky. So all the time afterwards, we said, "Get, get your chunky." <laughs> and uh, it's even in the script because uh, Sylvester said something about. Yeah, he, he, says, he, he calls says, him Chunky Gilmore. Yeah, chunky. I don't know why they call him that. <laughs> it's an in joke. <laughs> But uh, that was great. A tip, of course, tip tipping. Another. Yeah, isn't it sad how many people have died on the, on the production? Yeah. But um, tip was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. Well, the, the action sequences in those are great, and um, yeah. I mean, you know, they are marvelous icons, the Daleks. But directing yeah. them must be very challenging, especially on the cobbled streets of. Oh well, that's a story because um, <laughs> the um, special effects chap Stuart Brisden. Yeah. You know, uh, it was one that I, I liked him enormously, and we'd worked together before, and he, he, he was one of that, and, and he was doing this in the Daleks. And I said to him, I'm very worried because we've found a location, but it's got cobbled streets, and the Daleks have to be in it. What do you think? He said, Don't worry. He said, I'll make you an all terrain Dalek, uh, and I'll put these great big. Remember at the time there were wheelbarrows with those round wheels that uh, used to the get big puffy, the yeah, big, big sort of about, yeah. about a foot square, a foot in diameter. And uh, he put the, three of these wheels inside a Dalek, and he said that'll go, but not not blown up that hard. So they said they'll go over the um, cobbles, no problem at all. So fine. And uh, it came to the day, and. The, the guys got inside the Daleks moving around. Of course, there was no room for their feet. So I said, all right, take your shoes off <laughs> and try and be a ballet dancer and go on your toes. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't move it at all. So what we had to do is tip the Daleks upside down, take off these wheels, put on the casters as they used to, so there was room for them to move, and put boards down on top of the cobbles. So on the wide shots, if you look at, if you look at the wide shots, with the cobbled street, you can see the Daleks don't actually move in those shots. <laughs> they only move in the shots where I'm sort of, sort of, you don't see the the, the, the bottom of the of the Daleks because they're actually on on uh, you know, boards on plywood, so they can move. There's another uh, another story on that Dalek battle. There we were underneath um, we were at Waterloo East, yeah. and um, the special effects again, Stuart set up this huge explosion. So there was a there was a sort of a major Dalek with a big gun on him. Yeah. And uh, he, um, we had this explosion. I shot the, the gun going off. And then the, the reaction. And he got this huge explosion underneath the arch of Waterloo East um, Station. 
and the soot from centuries was destroyed and the, the billowed up over the station, all the alarms went off. I think there were 23 ambulances and uh, a huge amount of fire engines all came tearing around and they had to close the station. It was a huge fuss. It was on a bank holiday Monday and uh, it was all in the evening standard the following day and all the rest of it. We got into terrible trouble. But they saw the funny side, like, it wouldn't have happened today. We'd be in terrible, real, real bad trouble. But uh, in those days, it was always a bit of a laugh. Made Do- a good story. In the, in Doctor, the Doctor Who always seems to get forgiven for, for transgressions, though. I don't know what it is about the programme. Yes. Everybody's quite fond of Doctor Who, really. Um, yes. But I suppose that the trouble would come, come from the top, and that some of you haven't mentioned, um, is, is the producer, who's the final producer of Doctor Who, quite a controversial figure. Um, so what was your experience of John, John Nathan Turner? A one-off. Uh, st- the thing with John was he ever only had one line on his CV, producer Doctor Who. I mean, he, yes, he, as a, a production assistant and AFM, he'd, he'd done other shows, but that's the only thing he ever did. And he, he loved it, but he, he was in some ways his own worst enemy because he was so set in his ways that he he was a bit of a uh, he liked stars he, he wanted big names big big um, big huge important things he, he loved the conventions he, liked, he was a big showman a real showman um, and uh, he was slightly difficult because he didn't come from the truth, if you know. When you, when you have a script um, and you try and do what the writer has written down, your, my job, I always thought, is to, is to transform that into sound and vision and make it interesting and, and better the script. I think John wanted, I thought what was much more important to him was getting a star to play the lead um, and to me uh, that was nice if it happened but it wasn't the most important thing, the most important thing was to do the, uh, make a good story um, but having said that also he had his favourites and he had people he didn't like and um, I, I got on fine with him, I mean he seemed to like me and uh, we uh, we got on very well together, but there were I know there were other people who he couldn't stand. Well, and uh, it's always talked of as the, the sort of action story, but actually one of the, the, the I was going to move on from Doc Two, but I just remembered a scene that um, I think is very special, which is the scene with Joseph Marcel in the cafe when the Doctor and the cafe owner are talking about ripples, and that's a nice that's the sort of moment that might probably get cut today, wouldn't it? Because yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Four episodes, and it's a lovely yeah, scene. It though. is. Yeah, it's played. They played it really well too. I thought. But that was that's basically. I mean, that was, that wasn't an action scene. That was a nice, well written scene, and credit's got to go really for the writing. I think for that. Well, without asking you to name any names, before we move on from Doctor Who, because you were involved in the, um, the, uh, the, the casting of Sylvester, if it had gone to somebody else, what sort of Doctor might we have got? Did they, what, what sort of qualities did some of the others have that, that we might have seen that we would, meant we'd have got a different sort of Doctor? They were different people, but they were, uh, they were required to, to do the same script. 
so they were they would be it was very difficult it was I think it was um didn't it, it, I can't remember what it was called now on BBC two at night there was a tiny little studio where they used to do their late night oh the late the late review late, sort of late show yes yeah. the, yeah, the BBC sort of late show BBC on BBC two and I think they did um the film Barry Norman's film thing from this tiny little studio and that's what we used to do the the, the um the auditions, and uh, eventually we had we had three people, and uh, Sylvester was suited it better. The, uh, when, how different would they have been? Well, one was Irish, uh, and brought a lot of the Irish to it, um, but good actor, um, and. I find that's quite a difficult question to answer because had they been playing the part, they would have brought more to it afterwards. Sure. I mean, they were—they didn't even have costumes, no. you know. They and they were just reading the same script. So it was, I, I, it was the charisma, really, that, that Sylvester had that got him the part. I think. And it's, you might be able to clear this up because there's something because obviously we've seen those three and they're on the DVD, so we know who those those three actors are, but. It has been said that Ken Campbell auditioned and that Andrew Cartmel said Ken Campbell's audition was the scariest thing he ever saw, but there's no there's no um, physical evidence of that. So no, I wasn't you, there. You, you never it. saw an audition from no, Ken Campbell? No. His Doctor Who would have been quite well, a fantastic. Fantastic, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, extraordinary. Uh, also, I, I mean, I do, I do think, though, that there would be a danger that he'd kind of take over uh, because he's such a charismatic and one-off character. I, mean, I, mean, huge, I admire him enormously, but... Uh, I, I think it would have been a very different show if he'd done it, but I don't say that it would have been quite so different if, if one of the other mm. uh, people had gone. Yeah. Well, almost for the same reason I think they considered Michael Benteen when Tom Baker eventually got it, and I think this, a similar problem would yes. have happened because Benteen yeah. generated his own That's right, and there was energy. always talk of a, of a woman doing it, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, Where'd you stand on that? I think it would have been quite fun. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember Linda Bellingham would have been, uh, was talked about at one point. And um, I think John would have enjoyed yeah. working with her. Yeah, well, he got her into Doc Two, actually. Yeah, he uh, did. Yeah, yes. I did Linda for, for one of these. Bless her, lovely woman. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Um, so, moving away from Doc Two, but we'll move to sort of what got you towards it. So, I mean, what, what, well, what got you directing in the first place? Was your, was there any drama in your background? What drew you to it? Uh, well, in my family, my mother was uh, an actress. Uh, she went to um, Central School. It was called the Embassy in those days, I think. Uh, my grandfather, her father, was a playwright called Ben Travers, uh, who wrote a lot of the, the Aldrich farces. Mm. So it was sort of in the blood. My father's side was Welsh, and uh, uh, they had a bakery business in Pontypris in South Wales. Um, and, but he didn't go into that, my father himself. He, he became a lawyer and barrister. Uh, and... I don't know. There was a. Uh, I, I didn't know what to do when I left school, so I th I wanted to audition for RADA, and um, and I'd also uh, sat an exam for to go to Oxford, and uh, I got the I, I was allowed to go to RADA. I got the audition, so I, I was excited about that, and um, I persuaded my father to forego Oxford, which is a stupid thing to do. I'd never do it to my son, but. Uh, <laughs> The uh, anyway, I went to Rada and I wanted to become an actor, and I did about two afterwards. Um, I, I then did a tour with Brian Rick's farce called One for the Pot, 
and uh, I did a few bits and pieces of, uh, and ended up at York Rep. And uh, I, I found myself beginning to realise that as an actor, I was not a leading man type of person. I was a sort of character, going to be okay as a character actor. But then I'd be 40 before I could earn anything, earn any money. I thought, that's no good. So I went to stage management and I became, I ran a theater, the, the summer season theatre in Scarborough and then uh, stage director back at York. Um, and then I got into the BBC um, as, a, as a holiday relief AFM, as they called it in those days, which was a kind of a runner. Um, and I started, one of the first shows I did was the Sherlock Holmes series with Peter Cushing and Nigel Stock. And um, I just loved it. I thought, great. And I had my evenings off, which was because <laughs> we were filming down in, in Devon. We did Hounds of the Baskervilles. And I, um, I thought, oh, this is great. And my contract came to an end, and I, I hadn't heard anything, so I didn't come into work. And the phone went and said, where are you? And I said, well, my contract's come to an end. And I said, no, 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 that's all right. Okay. It'll be renewed. Come in, get going. And I carried on and joined the staff as an AFM, and then as a, a what they called PA in those days, the production manager, uh, first assistant. And then uh, I thought, I'd probably like to be a producer. And I noticed that all the best producers that I'd been working with, in, this was in drama series, um, they all knew how to direct. So uh, I got, a, I applied and was given a, a director's course. And once I started directing, I had this sort of blinding flash. I thought, God, I'm mad. This is what I want to do. I don't want to produce and get involved with money and all sorts of things like that. I want to be able to work with actors and, you know, and, and actually create a, a program, even if it's part of a series. Um, I'd like to be involved with that rather than the overall thing. And uh, so I did, um, I did a couple of softies, softies, and I did a Sutherland's Law with Frank Cox up in Glasgow and various bits and pieces. And um, then uh, Ronnie Marsh, who was the head of series at the time, said, um, that you've done it, um, you, you better come back on the... And I said, but I want to direct. He said, well, you know, you have to leave if you want to do that, because the BBC aren't going to employ any more directors. You have to be freelance. So I did um, Who Pays the Ferryman out in Crete mm. with... Um, Jack Headley. With Jack Headley, yes, and uh, Bill Slater. And Bill hurt himself, um, and so I took over directing a lot of that. And I loved that. And then I thought, well, that's enough, enough's enough. I'm going to go uh, freelance, and I did. And... Um, Actually, what happened was I met a producer called Jerry Glaster in the car park. He said, what are you doing? And I, I, I told him, and he said, well, why don't you come and do a secret army? I couldn't believe I was hearing this. I said, well, I'm gonna, I'll go freelance uh, if you give me a... Um, he said, well, do what you like, but you can, you know, I'd love you to come and do a secret army. Uh, so I said, OK. And then I was offered a Blake 7. And the filming for one, because we used to do all the filming up front for all the episodes. And uh, I did this filming for Secret Army, then the filming for Blake Seven, and then the studio for Secret Army. And, the, and, and I went freelance and I went and saw Ronnie Marsh and told him I was going. And the first thing that happened was they took my free colour television set away. And um, that was it. I was freelance from that moment on. And I worked a lot at the BBC. Uh, and. Um, and then eventually a lot at ITV and never at the BBC, and a lot of, a lot of for independence as well. I've, had a, I've been quite lucky, I think, because I've never had bad periods out of work, and I've always been 
in demand, I suppose. I also had a secondary curious. Of, um, I did uh, Swallows and Amazons Forever with Joe Waters, which is a cook club in the big six. Um, lovely stories, uh, Arthur Ransom stories, and that, they were quite successful. Where I got uh, nominated for BAFTA and things. And uh, so from that, I met Anna Hume, who was now at TVS and did Knights of God at TVS, and then uh, lots of other children's series. And then I eventually um, I got together with Julian Fellows, and we did um, three big series, children's series at the BBC. Um, and uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy got an Emmy Award. So I was sort of up and running. So, so we can sort of trace the lineage of uh, Downton Abbey back to you, in a way. Uh, well, Julian, yes. I met Julian on, on uh, Swallows and Amazons, and then we got together to make... Uh, a, wanted to make a, we found this book called Little Sir Nicholas, which was written by a nun. It was a terrible book, but it, we thought it would make a really good television series set in Cornwall. So we uh, approached Anna, and uh, eventually we made that, and um, it was very successful. And then we did Prince and the Pauper, and, uh, and then Little Lord Fauntleroy, and they each one got better and better, I think. And then Anna left, and uh, was somebody else took over who didn't want to be involved with uh, classical children's books any longer, so we, uh, we went our separate ways. And Julian's done very well, hasn't he? Yes. Uh, but you had him doing very badly as a, uh, as a villain in um, you've just you've briefly mentioned it, Knights of God, which is oh, yes. sort of which was ITV's sort of answer to Doctor Who in a way, although it got sort of mucked around the schedules. And, and, and Patrick Troughton's last televised job, I think, because it was televised after he died. Yeah, uh, was it? Yes, it was sad. I remember um, I offered him the part, and he said, uh, "Well, I've had a heart attack, and uh, I will fail the medical." for the insurance so um, I won't uh, and I, I won't do a medical I don't, I don't want to do it so you, you've got to go to your superiors and say I will do the part but I won't do the medical and they've got to take the risk if I die. so anyway they eventually decided that they would take the risk and, and I'm delighted to say he did it and he was wonderful in it and was your Welshness anything to do with it? Because I noticed you've got um, um, Knights of God's... Uh, it's got that Welsh street running through it, but you've got Gareth Thomas, who, of course, from Blake 7. William Thomas is in the first episode's Knights of God, and oh, you yes. cast him in Remembrance of the Daleks, which means that when he appeared in a Christopher Eccleston story, he was the first actor to have been in Old Doctor Who, a new Doctor Who. Oh, really? Yeah, so he has, he has a unique place in Doctor Who's history. Oh, yeah. very good. Yes, he was an undertaker or something for yes, me, wasn't he? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely face, yeah, lovely chap. Well, I suppose uh, uh, some of the, the reason why he was in the second Doctor is because he's down yeah. in Cardiff. Yeah, and, and he's, uh, also, that's where it's made, he's yeah. also in Torchwood, so he also is the only actor that's ever been in Old Doctor Who, New Doctor Who and Torchwood. Has he really? Yeah. Well, good for so, him. Yeah, good old skin. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing what being in a haunted undertaker's yeah. shop where it will lead you. Um, uh, but let's, let's go back, because you mentioned Who Pays the Ferryman, which I watched a couple of years ago. Um, it's beautiful. I mean, it surely can't get much better than making a television series on a beautiful Greek island. Oh, I mean, <laughs> and before it was spoilt, too. I mean, they had made Lotus Eaters out there yeah. with Wanda Ventham. Uh, and uh, th that uh, was great. They'd been at Ios Nikolaos. And Michael J. Bird, who wrote, came up with this idea, which we loved. I thought, I thought it was great. And we went out there, and it was a co production with the Greek Film Centre. So, a lot of Greek actors. And uh, I, well, it was April, May, and June in this wonderful island 
Um, and we had the most extraordinary time. It was really, really hot, lovely, five-day weeks. Um, I remember I bought a little... I went to Athens and bought a little red Fiat sports car, which Jack Headley had to drive, and eventually crashed in the, in the series. And uh, I was driving... I was the only one allowed to drive it, so I was driving around all these things in this lovely... Except when it was filming, of course. Um, and uh, the, my... My wife and my young children, as they were then, they came out and it was great. It was uh, really good. Jack Watson was in it and came yes. out. Uh, and uh, a lasting friendship with him. Um, yeah, it, was, it was super. And, and Jack Headley was great. Um, there was one... We had one problem with it, which is quite interesting. Well, Sheridan Morley came out to interview Jack for Radio Times. And... Uh, I had a flat which um, I shared when my family were out there. I shared with the, my assistant, Michael Brayshaw, who became a director afterwards. Yeah. And, uh, and Michael and I, uh, Jack used to come around and have a, a vodka or something with us most evenings. We had a nice balcony. And he brought uh, Sheridan Morley around. And we were talking about, um, about sort of famous fathers, because... Uh, Sheridan knew about me and Ben Travers, my grandfather, who was obviously Sheridan knew very well. And of course, there was Robert Morley, Sheridan's father. And Jack said, Oh, I, 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 um, I never knew my father. And um, my, uh, my mother brought me up, and um, she started this business addressing envelopes, um, which was hugely successful. And she'd made a lot of money and sent Jack to a public school. and. Uh, and then Jack had uh, children and, uh, and uh, was happily married and that sort of thing. And uh, no, I, uh, I was always a one-parent family. Sheridan wrote this in the, about Jack in the front of the Radio Times, and his mother uh, got uh, really upset about it and cut him off, um, cut off the, the children and the, the house I think they lived in either belonged to her or she was paying the mortgage or something. And it was a disaster for him. And I, I don't know, I haven't been in touch with Jack. Is he still... He is, he still, is. Yeah. He loved it, I was in Greece. I can't believe I'm not reading the Times. <laughs> I really, uh, he sort of enjoyed it very much, I think. I think Neil McCarthy does a great job of being Greek oh, when he fantastic, wasn't. fantastic, yeah. Lovely actor. Yes, lovely. I haven't seen him Oh, he died quite late. Oh, he did. He died quite young. Yes, he did. He died a long time. Used to work. He died in 1984. Gosh, isn't it? It took a long time. Yeah. Jack must have quite old. Yeah, mid 80s, I think. Yeah. But but yeah, Neil Neil McCarthy did a few Doctors and his his. But he was. I mean, he was a. He had giantism. I mean, he was a big man. Yes. Yeah. And then. The other, the BBC's other science fiction show is Blake Seven. You only did one, but uh... yes, it was. The, well, it was actually the because Gareth only did the first series, didn't he? Uh, first two, yeah. The first two yeah. series. This was when I did it. It was the, the third and final series, and uh, Gareth wasn't in it, um, and uh, so I. It was called Children of Auron. That's right. Yes, that's right. That was fun. That was, you managed to get Ronald good. Lee Hunt in quite a small part and Michael Troughton in quite a small part. You get your, you get yes. your in your small parts. Uh, <laughs> well, yes. I just uh, hope for the best, really. I get them. I find with actors, the thing to do is to cast them at the last minute 
because you, you, you can get a, a much better action. If they're not working, you say, can you come up next week? They'll say, oh, yeah. Um, but if you ask them three months before, they're going to say no, because I might get something better. <laughs> so uh, that, that's my tip for getting good actors. Oh, man, I <laughs> But um, on, the, the one thing I remember about Blake 7 is we, we did a, a... I wanted it, the planet, wherever we were on, or on, I suppose, yeah. uh, um, to be not be England's green and pleasant land. I didn't want a lot of grass and verdant greens and things around. I wanted it to be quite stark. And we found this dam in Yorkshire, uh, big, big concrete jet, and we thought, well, if I can make this bigger, uh, it'd be really good. So we, we did what's called a glass shot. I don't know they're ever done today, but you have a great sheet of glass in front of the camera, which is locked off. Yeah. And the painter comes and paints whatever he wants in the glass. So the camera looks at you know, what's in the, on the glass as well as what's behind. And, of course, the actors can only work in the bit that's not that's clear glass so they can see what they're going through. And I did this, set up this sequence with this dam, a huge, great dam, and they were running across it, obviously only the middle of it, because we painted in the, yeah. the side bit. And um, we set it up all day. The painter was waiting along and we came to do it in the afternoon. And uh, they were all running across this dam, and it, was, it worked perfectly first time. So I, uh, I said to the cameraman, everything all right? He said, yes. And uh, I said, well, do you think we ought to do it again? He said, well, why? It's fine. Yeah. Okay, fine. All we go. It's fine. And we took down the glass and that sort of thing. And when we saw the rushes, there was a tiny fly, which no one had seen, walking up the glass in the clear bit, and it was unusable. It, was, uh, it broke my heart. <laughs> all this effort, and uh, we could. We did use a tiny bit of it, actually. I mean, you used it, and then uh, by the time you'd seen it, you cut away because otherwise you'd have seen the fly. You know? But you had. Oh, that's yeah, tragic. Sad, yeah. Always get an extra one in the can for safety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, t- talk to that interesting because we've, we've flirted with the idea that you know you, you worked your way up through the ranks, as it were. So, were there any directors? that you learnt from who you worked under that you thought were particularly good television directors when you were uh, a, a, an apprentice? Yes. Um, yes. Uh, Peter Gugine, Ken Hannam, Paul Chapasoni. I, I also had a great friend called Lenny Main who wasn't a particularly good director but a great friend of mine. He, he did was a staff news. director. He did a lot of them. He was a marvellous chap. Um, yes. Well, tell us about Jim Lenny, because not, 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 not much is known about Lenny, because he died so long before anybody Funnily got a enough, he, to interview him. Yes, he died when I was doing Who Pays the Ferryman, because I got the news when I was out there. And um, it's, I don't know how... Now, you know, people... I'm used to people dying, you know, but at that time, I wasn't. Uh, my parents were still reasonably young, and no-one much died. And I had this great friend. I mean, he really was my best friend, really. And I was extremely fun. We used to do scuba diving together, and we did warship together. And we were pretty inseparable. We used to go on holiday with his family and down in Devon and things. And the news came through uh, that he was missing, presumed drowned on this um, accident across the channel. And uh, I, I was desperate. Um, and... Uh, I remember in the evening we were in a taverna um, by the side of the sea and I had this great wave of sickness and I I had to rush into the sea and was physically sick in the sea because my grief was 
was that bad. It's n I've never had that since. Although, you know, I've had many, my sister and my parents, of course, and those people have died. And I've never really f felt that, felt so, so bad as I did with dear Lenny. I mean, he was great. And um, it was just terribly, terribly sad. And uh, we all adored him. And um, his daughters must be you know, quite big now. They turned 50, because uh, I interviewed they Rex didn't. and Pat Robinson. Oh, Rex Robinson really? Robinson was yeah. a friend of a great friend of Lenny's. And yeah. um, they're still in touch with Pidge, with Pidge uh, yeah. who's not very well. Um, and but they said, oh yeah, oh, and, right. and Lenny's twin daughters. This so this was 2013. Lenny's twin daughters are 50 next week. Okay. When was that? 2013, November 2013. God. So they'll be 52 now. Yeah, I've always felt sad that I haven't kept up with them. We we used to do Christmas cards and things, but you know, it's, we don't do that any longer. I'm sorry to hear pictures unwell, but Lenny was no, was a, was, a, was a great, great, great friend. And, um, so it's sad when you come to, to, to later on in life. So many friends have done. John Hallam was a great friend of mine. And, and um, anyway, I don't want to do morbid. <laughs> no, well, interesting noting actors that sort of go through your. I mean, I, I guess it dates back to you working on Cushing's Sherlock Holmes, but you, Nigel Stock and you seem to cross paths quite a lot. Yes, uh, my sister in law. Um, was blind. She went blind when she was 13. She had a brain tumour. And uh, she was a friend of the family and uh, obviously she came, used to come and stay with us. And Nigel met her and was absolutely charming to her. And they used to uh, meet up occasionally um, and just have a drink. I mean, nothing in it. But, you know, he was, he was a great friend of hers. And I, I knew him, obviously, as an actor from... Uh, and got, like, quite friendly with him uh, when he was playing Dr. Watson and I've worked with him on other little bits and things and when I came for me to do my director's course uh, I asked him if he'd do me a favour and, and be in uh, one of the shows I did and, uh, which he did and I remember I, as a payment I gave him a bottle of port from Harrods <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it's funny how the world goes around because now I'm very friendly with uh, Richanda Carey who was married to him but, uh, but, um, um, she's now remarried and, uh, and uh, yes Nigel was, was a great friend and a very sad loss you know. I guess you needed good friends on um, Triangle uh, I mean, t tell it because it's looked back on now as this sort of grand folly. Was it? Was there was the, the feeling of that at the time? Well, it was quite interesting technically because it was the first time one-inch tape was used uh, as an outside broadcast, and it was actually quite. Uh, it was used by the outside broadcast department as quite innovative uh, thing. But it was, it was extraordinary because we were going across the North Sea in, in winter, and. You know, there would be a sort of roll call after after breakfast. You know, when crew time, and we'd see who was not sick because everyone was ill, <laughs> and I, the only person who couldn't be ill was the director. Um, but everybody, well, you do the boom today, and uh, you can do the camera. And what actors are available? Oh, I see. Well, okay. Oh, we can't do that scene. We'll, we'll do this, and we'll do. And it was a bit like that, you know. Um, and then, you know, it's quite. It was funny, and and blowy and uh, we found that the place to go was uh, right down in the bottom of the ship in the centre of the ship there was a sauna 
and we all used to go down there and have a sauna before we used to go to bed at night. And uh, because it was the, there was less movement down there than anywhere else, I got used to it after a while, um, and uh, I was I was okay. But um, they they. The trouble was, the ship was empty because, you know, there were only a few lorry drivers who didn't want to know and were sleeping um, and um, weren't really around. Her. So it looked as if the ship was sort of a ghost ship with nobody on it at all, you know. It was just our actors and no extras. And we couldn't afford extras. So, so um, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't that good. We had some fun in Amsterdam, though. That was, uh, Larry Lamb was in it. Yeah. Uh, and he was uh, he was great, and um, a couple of the other actors were, were, were very good. We, we always sort of it wasn't a very good show, but it was quite fun to make. Well, and I, I think I, that's very important. That actually, we all, I always try and have a good time making it. It should be, you know, you well, work hard and play hard. Yeah, creativity flourishes. I think mm. it doesn't it. People have well, look. I've exceeded my time, so I'll, I'll, uh, I have to ask you about being high sheriff. <laughs> Tell me about being high sheriff. Well, it was extraordinary. I was doing Heartbeat, um, and I was on a recce up in uh, North Yorkshire. And I remember I was just we were coming off the, the bus, all of us with the camera crew, and I was talking about using this particular location. And my mobile went, and it was a friend, a chap I know, said, "How would you like to be high sheriff of Greater London?" I said, "What?" He said, "How would you like to be high sheriff?" I said, well, I don't know. Um, what, what's involved? Oh, he said, it's great fun. You just go around and you go to a few prisons and you do this. And so I said, well, uh, yeah, it sounds OK. Um, uh, I'll think about it. And um, I rang him back and he, he persuaded me it would be a good thing to do. So, um, I absolutely loved it. It was a fantastic, complete change of career. I mean, there's no money in it. It's, it's, a, it's a job you would do for... for to pay back a bit, really. I ended up doing... Uh, well, I went to lots of places. I mean, you're up on the police helicopter, you're down, up and down the Thames with a thing, going out on the beat with um, police. That was I loved that, especially at Charing Cross Police Station on a Friday night, um, going out with... Uh, doing 80 miles an hour up Great Portland Street with the blues and things going. Exciting. Um, you visit all the... Uh, uh, a lot of the courts in London. It's quite different being a high sheriff in, in the counties to it is in London, because London's a big, big area. My sort of thing was everything within the M25. So there were lots of courts to go to and lots of uh, judges to meet and the Old Bailey to go to and, and lots of prisons. And I ended up doing a, a radio play at Wandsworth Prison, which the, I got the prisoners to write and uh, act in. The trouble is that the... Uh, they, if, if you do any sort of anything wrong in a prison, as a prisoner, you can very often get moved on to another prison to stop any trouble happening. And my actor had <laughs> come in the next day and for rehearsal, and the actor would be moved to Oxford or Birmingham or something. Oh, God, what do I do? But it, was, um, it, it worked out in the end. It was, it was good. Triangle all over again. Yes, sort of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. The, 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 you'll get your reward only, sadly, by... Um, uh, uh, donations to your charity of choice, Andrew. So what is your charity? Changing Faces. Uh, I would like any, any money to go to them. They, uh, they do fantastic work um, helping people who have unfortunate to have you know, blemishes and horrible things happen to their faces. And 
and they make people believe in themselves. These people very often don't want to go out and be seen in public. They're shy and they're, they're ashamed somehow, and it makes them, gives them confidence to go out and face the world, and um, they do a wonderful job, I think. Well, excellent, and they will benefit from this, which is great. I hope they will, yeah. Um, and this podcast was originally convened to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. It's now 52, it will be this year. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Oh, well, <laughs> keep watching. It's fascinating. I love it still. I mean, it's so different now. The digital age changed everything with Doctor Who, didn't it? I mean, the, yeah. the bobbly sets and all that thing all went. Uh, and um, I think the stories actually... I enjoy it enormously, but I find that sometimes they're a bit complicated, even for an old man like me. So uh, I just hope they keep it nice and simple. But I, I think it's a wonderful programme, and I, I, I'm sure it will go on forever and ever. Well, and I'm very grateful that people like yourself uh, give me your time. So, Andrew Morgan, thank you very much. That's a great pleasure. Thank you. That's great. That's great. Thank you. No, it's brilliant. Oh, it's so nice to hear, because it's things like hearing about people like, you know, I think it's, I read all these names when I was a kid. My thanks to Andrew, uh, who very kindly gave his time and nominated his charity, which is www.changingfaces.org.uk. www.changingfaces, all one word, all small case, .org.uk. More from Who's Round next time. Apologies for the background noise in that one, but we were at BAFTA, and BAFTA members were allowed to talk as they eat. Um, oh, somebody wants me to talk. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, the fourth Doctor Adventures, The Pursuit of History. Ah, you hear that? That, my friends, is a special train engaged by some preposterously wealthy men who have taken it upon themselves to bring something rather special down for London. Something rather special that's worth a lot of money. Tell us what. The time is approaching! The time for what? Something's heading straight for the TARDIS. Force field generators are overloading. Quick! Romana! What? Did you hear that? You did? Well, of course I heard it, otherwise I wouldn't be asking if you'd heard it. It's Alon. Must help us, Romana. What? Ah! The mistress is dematerializing with Alon. You helped us long ago, Romana. I hoped you could help us again. But I did not realize you would die in the vortex. I would not have you die for us. I may have to kill you. I think I've stumbled on a not-so-great train robbery. That's it, get a move on. Wait a minute. Right, lads, let's get our cargo unloaded. Well, whatever it is, it's certainly heavy. Big finish. We love stories. That voice. I recognise that voice.